Am I on? Sounds like I'm on. Good evening. It's good to be here with you this evening. I'm thankful uh, for the opportunity that I've been given to speak with you this morning, uh, Evan, or this evening, excuse me. Uh, Andy and Evan were away at marriage retreat this weekend, um, and uh, so y'all are left with me. So I'm sorry about that, but I, I am thankful for the opportunity we have. Uh, it is with a heavy heart that I tell you I decline to continue the end of Daniel. I know, I'm sorry. Um, I, so I think all of our minds maybe get a little bit of a rest uh, from wrestling with angels and demons and all of these different prophecies. Uh, but Andy's going to do a much better job than I can with that. Uh, but I'm excited for the topic that we're going to try to dive into and discuss tonight. I'm excited to discuss a, a very important topic with you. A few months ago, the teens and I, um, we walked through a study that we called Step by Step. Uh, I've got a few teens here sitting on the front row with us, so guys, you're going to be the experts tonight uh, and see if there's anything different from what I've said. Y'all have heard this before. Uh, but in this series, we, we, asked, uh, we asked some questions, and the question we really asked are, hey, what actions are needed? What actions do I need to take to try to help myself and my, and my friends and my family, what can I do to make sure that I'm always looking to take one step closer to God? And so we kind of had this conversation and this idea of, hey, what does it look like step by step to increase my, my intimacy, my relationship with God? And so we spent a few months kind of walking through um, some different practices, some different things that we've kind of given the name, the spiritual disciplines, um, these actions, these practices that we see throughout Scripture and in our conversation, we began to kind of ask some questions. And one of the questions that was really kind of the driving force uh, of a lot of those conversations, but the conversation I want to have tonight is when you think about what we do as Christians, when, when you think about the week in and week out things, I want to ask you a question of what, what do you think is the most important thing that a Christian can do in a week? What do you, if you kind of had to prioritize different things, what, what would you think would be some of the most important things we do? And if, and if we sat and we tried to answer and come up with a lot of answers for that, we could come up with a lot of things, couldn't we? We could say that Bible study, spending time in God's Word, learning and studying the commandments. We could say prayer, spending time, uh, spending time talking to God, casting our cares and anxieties on Him. We could say trying to reach out having these spiritual conversations, being evangelistic and mission-minded. Those are all important things, and I don't think we can argue that they're not. All of these are great and God-honoring things, and there are many things that we could have added to this list. And there's one you may be saying that, well, maybe you've left off the list, and there's one that I would argue definitely is left off that list, and that is worship, right? Worship. Worship is one of the greatest honors as a follower of God that we get to participate in. But sadly, unfortunately, there are times that worship and our discussion of the importance of worship can, can be or has been overshadowed by a couple of things. Um, the first one is something that, that was introduced to me. Uh, it was a concept uh, by, uh, it's a concept called terminal earnestness. Terminal earnestness. Have you ever heard that concept or that phrase before? This is a phrase that introduced to me by a professor at Freed, and, and we were kind of talking about, uh, talking about the spiritual disciplines, talking about things like this, uh, and this was kind of in the context of worship, and this concept has really always stuck with me. Terminal earnestness is when I or when anyone gets so focused on something, we get so focused on doing something right or perfectly right that it sucks the joy out of that thing. 
It completely takes all enjoyment or all enjoy or all kind of joy or, or excitement out of that thing. You get so focused. It's kind of that paralysis by analysis kind of thing where you've just been staring at a problem for so long you can't really move forward because you're constantly looking at different ways to move forward, right? It's kind of the same thing with terminal earnestness. And unfortunately, there are times that our conversations and actions towards worship can be led by this terminal earnestness. In John 4, 23 through 24, Jesus, in the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, tells us that we are to worship. There's going to come a time where the children of God, the worshipers of God, they're going to worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're going to worship in spirit and in truth? Well, that means that there is a way that God calls and expects us to worship, right? Worshiping in truth. There is a way that God calls and expects us to worship him. God, through his word, tells us, hey, not just anything can go. There are some things uh, that we, there, there is a true way to offer acceptable and pleasing worship to God. I don't think that's an arguable fact. We see that throughout scripture. God has his model, his way. He says, this is what is accepting, right? But there is also this spiritual aspect, this emotional aspect to worship. Worship should be emotional. It should connect us deeper with God and with the others around us as we worship God. I don't think you can miss that side of this either. And ideally, these things should be balanced, right? Ideally, in a perfect world, we want these two to be balanced. We want both sides of the same coin. We want those to be perfectly balanced balanced. But sometimes these things get out of balance. And this is where terminal earnestness on both sides happens. We can become so focused on the truth side and how we are to worship, the style of worship, and which style of worship is correct and which style of worship is not, that we miss the fact that God cares just as much about where the heart is in worship as much as where the mind is in worship. We miss the fact that we can make worship so much about what's right that we miss where's our heart, where's our connection in this. And on the flip side of, the, of that coin, we can make worship such a spiritual and uplifting thing that we actually can make worship about the worshiper instead of the one that we are worshiping. We can make it more acceptable to us, so much so that we lose the fact that what we're trying to do is make something that's acceptable to God. Terminal earnestness works on both sides, and I think that is something that, if we're not careful, can really overshadow our conversations and our importance of worship. The second thing, the second thing I think has really overshadowed this conversation and the importance of worship um, is maybe a complete and total misunderstanding or, or maybe even ignorance of what worship actually is. If you're like me, you've grown up in the church. Uh, if, you've, if you're like me, you've grown up going all of your life. You, if you grew up in the church, you most likely were there every time the doors were open. Bible classes, Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, gospel meetings. That was just the way, that was the way I grew up. That was the way many of you probably grew up. And it got me thinking, how many times have I been in some kind of worship setting? How many hours have I spent in a worship setting? When I did this class with the teens, I kind of ran the numbers, and I, and I went, and I just tried to think about up until 18. Um, so how many hours have I spent um, 
you know, in my 18 years of growing up in the church, how many hours did I spend in a worship setting? Uh, and if you were just counting camps, so a week of camp every year at Short Mountain, um, Sundays, Wednesdays, two years, uh, two retreats a year, those are typical things that, that teenagers would go to. Those are typical things I went to. That's not counting all the youth conferences, not, not counting Sunday night devos. That's kind of the same for you. It's like, hey, that's not counting all the different things you can go. But if you kind of do the basics and add a few things, if you did that for 18 years, that would equal about 4,788 hours spent in some kind of worship setting, some kind of setting performing worship acts. But here's the sad thing. If you were to go back and ask 18-year-old Jesse Bates after spending all this amount of time in a worship setting and said, hey, can you define worship for me? Can you tell me what you're truly doing in this setting? Can you tell me what you're focusing on? What's your heart at? What, what's the, what, how are you doing this? What's the mechanism? What's the driving power of this? What are you focusing on here? What is a definition of that? I don't know if I could have told you a great definition. I knew I was supposed to do it. I knew I was supposed to praise God and focus on Him, but outside of those things... I was just kind of doing what I always grew up to do. I was doing what I was always seen and what I've always been told, right? I didn't understand what worship truly was. And while I was trying to accomplish, or what I was trying to accomplish, I didn't understand the gravity of what I was trying to do. And I just had it kind of summed down to, this is what we do. We go to church. Part of church is singing. Part of church is listening to someone preach. Part of church is doing this. That's just it. I wasn't giving it any much more thought. We have spent a long time doing worship. But maybe you're like me, and and maybe when it comes to defining what we are doing, maybe we have a hard time of that. Maybe you don't know how to define what you're doing, when you're doing it, or how you're doing it. What the goal is for doing it. Worship of our God will always be one of, if not the most powerful, life-changing, important thing that we can do as a follower of God. So we should probably know what it is, what its purpose is, and how we should try and approach it. Tonight, I'm aware, I'm fully aware that many of you have spent many years worshiping God uh, and praising God. Some of you have been worshiping the Lord longer than I have been alive. I'm completely and fully aware of that, and I recognize I have a lot to learn when it comes to this as well. Um, And I know that I am not going to say anything tonight that may be revolutionary or new, um, but I hope it serves as a reminder. I hope what we talk about tonight serves as as a reminder of the great honor and task we have when we get the opportunity to come and worship our God, our Lord, and our Savior and what we are trying to do when we enter into these moments where we engage in worship. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Revelation 4 and 5. You may be getting a break from the book of Daniel, but you're not getting a break from apocalyptic language. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we see John is recording a vision that he is getting from the throne room of God. It's a magnificent vision. We're going to read this whole, we're going to read 
pretty much the whole start of it and, and kind of halfway through it, and then we're going to get into some really deep stuff. We're not going to get into all the visions because um, there's some really, really deep stuff with there. I want to focus more on this, this throne room scene here. Uh, but John is kind of receiving this vision of, of the throne room of God, and it's a very similar vision to what Isaiah sees uh, It was given to him almost 800 years before this, and it's what's recorded in Isaiah 6. It's very similar. The language is incredibly similar. And I'm going to reference both of those uh, quite a bit tonight. But let's take some time and let's read these two chapters and then let's kind of discuss them further. And I want us to look and see what can we learn about worship from Revelation 4 and 5. So let's take some time and read uh, these two chapters, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. After this, I look and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. Seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with gold crowns on their heads. From the thrones came flashes of lightning and rumblings and perils of thunder. And before the throne was burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight." And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and worshiping him who lives forever and ever, they cast down their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Jump in with me in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within uh, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the thrones, the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, and there are, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, and honor, and glory, and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and in the sea, all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So let's take some time. I know that's a lot. Uh, and I know there's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of different things. Let's not get bogged down in that. We're not going to get into all the details, all the different symbolisms and the numbers. Um, that's a conversation for a whole nother time. But I want us to take some time and kind of talk about these two chapters a little further. Um, because I think there's some really, really important things that we can gather from these two chapters. Revelations four and five are all Revelation four and five, excuse me, are all about the throne room and the worship setting. And it's here that we see what worship is all about. We see actually two different people or two different beings worshipped here in Revelation four and five. We see God the Father who is sitting on the throne. We see Jesus the Son represented as the Lamb who has been slain, who opens the, who opens the seals. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But, again, not getting bogged down in all the symbolism, not getting bogged down in all the the language and the apocalyptic stuff. Broad strokes, what do you see in Revelation 4 and 5? Broad strokes, what do you see here? It gives us a beautiful image of pure worship, heavenly worship. It's an image that is never going to be experienced this side of heaven. There's too much majesty. There's too much beauty happening. John probably has a hard time describing it. He's trying to use things that we can understand, that we can grasp, to give us the the gravity and the beauty and the majesty that we see in this scene. He's describing it all in these beautiful gems and, and stones and precious things that are around him. He's trying so hard to describe it in ways we can understand. And I want us to pay attention with what is happening, what is being said in these passages and how God is worshipped in this passage so that we can better understand how to better worship God because we see God and Jesus worship for a couple different reasons here. And so I want us to kind of look at that. In this passage, we see God worshipped for who and what he is. We see God and Jesus worship for who and what they are. Throughout this text, we see these creatures and heavenly beings address God in a couple different ways, right? In chapter 4, we see these creatures use different titles, such as holy. They repeat this title over and over again. It's the first things out of their mouth. Holiness, right? God is holy. Holiness describes something that is separate, that is apart Nothing like anything else. One of the very, one of the first things they recognize is God's holiness. That He is above all things. It is very similar to what, to the same thing that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6. The, the creatures repeat, repeat this same phrase. Our God is holy. He is unlike anything we will ever experience. He is above all. They also describe him as almighty. All power is possessed by him. Power is something that is so easily 
recognized and appreciated, right? Power is something I think we can see. When something has immense power, it's like you can almost feel it. There's, it's like a force that's given off from it. I remember when I was a kid, I remember probably when I was like four or five, I remember we went to the Nashville Zoo, and I don't know why this memory stuck, sticks out to me, but it does. I remember when we went, and I remember we got to ride the elephants. And I remember as a really small kid, just imagine little Jesse Bates, I was about this, this tall, um, standing next to such a massive animal. I remember as a kid just being impressed and being kind of in awe of such a massive thing. It had such a force that you just recognize power. That is something that I think maybe we've all had an experience of that. When we are in the presence of power, we feel it. It's easily recognizable. What do you think it was like for John to be in the presence of a truly all-powerful being? What do you think it was like for Isaiah and Isaiah 6 to be in the presence of a being that when he spoke the foundations of the throne room he's standing in in this vision shake? What do you think it's like to be in the presence of a being that within his words there is a power to create and destroy universes? What do you think the feeling is in the presence of a being like that? What do you think John and Isaiah are feeling as they're looking at God and all these images? I imagine it's a mix of of terror and awe and all of these emotions that we just can't describe because of the presence of what they're in. That is who we are in the presence of when we worship and when we pray. They go on to describe more of what God and Jesus are and more in God of what Jesus is. He is infinite, who was and is to come. There are very few things in our world that we can know or can describe as infinite. Everything that we encounter in our daily lives has a finite beginning and end. God was before the beginning. That's always something that's really hard for me to think about. From the beginning of my life, all the way back as far as I can think from before the creation of the world, we understand that is when time began. It's hard for us to understand that God was before and will be forever after whatever happens here is gone. He is infinite. There is no, there is no start. There is no end. He is forever. God is being infinite. He is the creator. Through him was not anything created. He is the author of life they describe Jesus as a sacrificial lamb in verse five, twelve. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 12, the lamb who was slain for all the people, the atoning sacrifice of all of our sins. We see them worship him for worship God and Jesus for who and what they are. We see God and Jesus worship for where they are, his location, his position on the throne. We see in chapter 4 that we see that God is, he is sitting on the throne and, and when Jesus is introduced, he's in the center of all of this and it's all of these beings, they bow down to him when he opens the seals. Why does the position of Jesus and God matter? Why does John add those details? Why is he adding those things? God the Father is on the throne symbolizing him as king, right? That's an important thing, that's an important thing to notice that God is seated on the throne and there's these other thrones surrounding his throne, but ultimately the centerpiece is God's throne, right? Ruler over all. The only person of power in the room is Jesus, who is at the right hand of the throne and is then in the center, and he is accepting worship when they all bow down. And you may be asking, well, why is that important? 
part of worshiping God is recognizing the place that he deserves to have, right? Part of worshiping God because of who God is and what we are about to talk about, what he has done, both he and Jesus deserve the highest place of honor. There's no doubting that based on what we read here alone. He deserves, they deserve the highest place of honor. And that does not just pertain to the throne room. That means the world and that means our lives. This may be a conversation for another time, but I think it's something of note and just a comment to throw in here. Jesus throughout his ministry talks very much about the importance of the heart and the importance of guarding it. We have passages like Matthew 6, 21 where he says, where your treasure is, uh, your heart is there also. And, and Mark seven twenty through 23, where he says that what comes out of a man is what defiles him. Because, uh, and because uh, the language there that we see in Mark seven twenty one, it says, from within, out of the heart of man, comes these things. And he lists this kind of idea of evil. I think it's interesting Jesus talks so much about guarding the heart. And I think it's an important thing to add into when we talk about God being praised for where he is, when we recognize in this passage that God is listed on the throne room of heaven, there is no higher place that he can be exalted. He is there because he deserves to be there. I think it's important to talk about that we recognize that God being in a place of honor means everywhere, including our hearts. If he's not there then really, what's the value of him being in the highest place of heaven if we don't believe that and we don't change our lives to that? Just an interesting thought. God is praised for where he is. He deserves the highest honor, the highest place, and that is where he is seated. Why does he deserve that place? Finally, we see God is praised for what he has done and what he is doing. We've already commented on how the, the beings and, and these creatures, they praise God for his power, um, God holds the power to do things that no one else can do. We've seen that in some of our other discussions. But in chapter 5, we see the praise for God and, and, and Jesus because it's through Jesus, it's through him that there are only things that Jesus can do to fulfill God's plan that salvation comes to us. I want us to look back at, at chapter 5 and look at kind of the beginning there and talking about the, the scrolls and the Lamb. Um, and we're not going to reread it again, and, and there's a lot here, but I just think it's really interesting um, to kind of look at this. There's this vision of the scroll and the seals, and, and all of this is really symbolic. Like I said, we're not going to get too much into this. It kind of collates with seven other visions that are going to come later. But what you need to know about this is the scroll here seems from everything that I've read, seems to represent the deed of the inheritance of what we are to receive through Jesus. It's that idea of the, that idea of the inheritance that we receive in Ephesians 1. We've been talking about that a lot with the teens this week. Um, but Ephesians 1, it's the idea of we have been adopted into the family as sons of God, and through that, Jesus gives us this inheritance. This seems to be that ledger, that deed of this inheritance it's Christ's deed to all that, fa that the Father has promised through Jesus with his sacrifice on the cross. The scroll was sealed with seven seals, which are going to represent seven visions talked about later. We're not going to get into all of that, but here's why this is important. Look back with me in verses 5 through 9, uh, or sorry, verses 9, through, 9 and 10 of, uh, of chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll... And to open its seals, 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. For every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why is this important? Well, one, they recognize, hey, this is what happens when the seals are opened. Through Jesus, through his sacrifice, all of us are made into priests, into kings, into, uh, into a people, into God's people. We're entered into the kingdom. But Jesus is the only one who can open the seals. There's a moment that John starts to weep because he recognizes the importance of this scroll. And there's no one on, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. There's no one who can do this. And the only one who can is this lamb. This Lamb of God who comes, and it's through Him we see a fulfillment. God and Jesus are praised because they do things that only God and Jesus can do. And I think we recognize that. I think we see that. But it's an amazing thing to see when we see this. By becoming flesh, by becoming like us, and dying for us, covering us with His blood, rising from the dead, to this very moment so that we can be here and worship and be with him in this very moment. Jesus is the only one who can do this. And everything on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everything bows at the name of Jesus when he does this act. What an amazing thing to witness. I know that was a lot. So let's, let's try to simplify this. Let's try to break this down. Let's try to make it more practical. What do we take from Revelation 4 and 5 about worship? Let's start by, ter- by talking about what we can learn um, that worship is not. I hope that by reading these chapters, reading these chapters challenge you to think differently about worship and challenge you uh, maybe to, maybe some of the status quos of what worship has become um, in the modern era. Because according to Revelation 4 and 5, we see a couple things that worship is not And I want us to kind of pay attention to this. When we look at Revelation 4 and 5, worship is not a spectator sport. What do I mean by that? Worship is not like going to a football game, a movie, a play, a show. It's not something that you sit down with no expectation of participation and expect to be entertained by or entertained with. That's not the purpose of worship. That's not, that's not what worship was designed to do. It's not meant to meet my criteria per se. It's not meant to entertain me. It's not about me. I can certainly gain things through worship because of the God I worship and because of how great he is. I get benefit from this. But I am not the object of worship. And I can't be the object of worship. Worship is not just something you experience, but you participate and experience. This is not, there, there is, I think it's interesting when you read this. There is not a being in heaven that is not actively participating in the worship of God the Father. There is no one sitting in the assembly going, you know, when Jesus opened those scrolls, I wish he would have done it in a different way. I wish he would have done it more dramatically. That's not happening. Why? Because this moment is not about any other thing than the Most High and the Almighty God and the fulfillment of His plan. There is no other thing that is the focus of this. Worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is not a once-a-week thing. Did you know 
Do you know that you don't have to be in a church building on Sunday morning from the hours of 9 to 11 to worship God? I hope you know that. Worship does not have to be this, this corporate thing, but so often we think of that as this is what it is. And we come in, we, we do our worship thing, we, uh, we do our worship thing for the week, and then we leave, and we do nothing else for the rest of the week, remotely similar to what we did here this morning and this evening. Worshiping, praising, honoring God is something that needs to be the focus of our lives every day. There needs to be a question of how can I praise God better today. Worship should be a part of our life, meaning what am I going to do about this day? What can I do to bring honor to God? Worship doesn't always have to be this corporate, this big corporate thing. So in closing, what is worship? According to Revelation chapters 4 and 5, worship is ascribing to God the proper worth Magnifying his worthiness of praise, better approaching and addressing God as worthy. To wrap all of those things up, I, I, I try to like to simplify things. What is worship? Worship is focusing on and responding to God. That's all it is. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what's happening in this moment. People are focusing on God, his majesty, who he is, and they're responding to what they're seeing the majesty and the beauty and the things in front of them. That's what our goal is when we come together, when we live our lives, what we do. This is our goal of when we worship God. When I decide I'm going to focus on Him, His nature, who He is, when I understand all that He has done for me, what He alone can do for me, where I would be without Him, when I focus on who God is, and I truly focus on that, I can't help but respond with praise. I can't help but to give my life, my heart, my voice, my tears, my love, because he deserves it all and so much more. This week, I want to challenge you uh, to ask yourself, what am I doing each day to focus and respond to God? If my response to God is not what I want it to be, do I need to focus more? Is it something where I'm maybe not focusing on God? Am I not spending enough time recognizing who He is? Is that what's leading to my response? Is it something different? Is there maybe something that's getting in the way? Is there sin? Is there fear? Is there discomfort? What can I do to better align myself to focus and to worship and to respond to God the way he deserves to be responded to. Not only in what we do here, in this building, but in life. How can I better each day wake up and decide, hey, I'm going to focus on God better today so I can respond to God better today. I'm going to focus on God better today so I can respond better so that other people can focus and respond better. How are we doing that each day? Maybe you're here this evening and you realize, hey, I could do a whole lot better on this. Uh, I could do a whole lot better with with how I offer worship. I could do a whole lot better in being, uh, in giving God glory daily. And to you, I would say, me too. To you, I would say, I'm, I'm right there with you. But let me tell you some good news. God knows we're going to struggle with this. God knows we could do better with this. God knew we could always do better with this. But God still chose to love me anyway. 
He still chose to send Jesus to die for me. He still believes in me and in my ability to do this, and he believes in you too. And he's given us a family of people who are struggling too, but we want to help each other be better at this. And we want to walk with each other and help each other get to heaven. If you're struggling this evening with anything, struggling tonight with anything, know that God loves you. Know that we love you. And we want to walk with you. If you have any need this evening, won't you come as we stand and as we sing?